Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Well, ho, 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 and Happy New Year. Happy New Year! How are you? I'm okay. Do you think we should come clean at this point? Come clean, I'd say, yeah. We're recording this on December the 27th. But we're, we're fairly confident the world won't have ended by the time it comes out on Monday. Exactly, exactly. So how was your Christmas? Very nice. You got me a brilliant present i mean presents you're a funny one because your birthday is on christmas eve so i'd like to give you a separate birthday present and christmas present because i imagine your whole life people have just kind of conflated the two yeah well no you were extremely generous i mean some fantastic pickles and i thought about getting you a pickling kit but i was worried you would see it as passive aggressive oh yeah 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 go back to make your own the vegan cheese set um, and, and and also a, an electric boat ride. So this this was for Christmas. The other was for your birthday. And to, I think we just have to sort of pass over my presents. No, your you. gift was great. You sent Jean some books, which I've really loved reading. And in a typically thoughtful way, you sent Now That's What I Call Music 110, which people will have heard <laughs> us talking about on the last episode. But I just need to find something that can play CDs somewhere in my house. I'm sure I have something somewhere. I could have probably bought it for you on Spotify and sent it to you, could I? (laughs) But, you know, you have um, said a lot recently that every time something happens to you, you are thinking, well, it's material for the podcast. Yeah. Well, the idea of getting an electric boat ride was quite selfishly. A calamity will unfold. You'll probably end up headfirst in the canal. That's extremely generous of you. I will report back. Anyway, and we're reporting today on a very special guest. Yes. So as we mentioned, as we we teased you with on our New Year episode, we are talking to Jack Thorne, who's a brilliant writer. Um, He's a great playwright. He's a great, great television writer. And he is also very active with a campaign called Underlying Health Condition, which is about representation of and inclusion of disabled people in the entertainment industry. But he's had a storied career. He's a brilliant, lovely, funny man. And we thought a conversation with him would just be the thing to start 2022. Completely. And uh, really looking forward to it. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Jack Thorne, hello. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Are you um, are you an old Lang Syne singer? Do you, do you like that song? Well, as you know, 
my brother-in-law is Frank Skinner and Frank knows seemingly every verse of Old Lang Syne and has us all sing it whilst filling in all the words in between the words. So he will shout out the words we are next due to sing and then we have to sing. That's really helpful. I mean, he's yeah. he's incredible. Yes, he does an amazing... Um, there was an old woman who swallowed a, a fly. fly. He knows he knows every single one of those. We, we just had that at Christmas too. So not just a stand-up comedian, also an incredible <laughs> song prompter. Have you, have you ever written anything set around New Year, Jack? I was wondering if, if it's a cheap dramatic trick or not. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've ri- ever written anything specifically about Christmas and I don't think I've ever written anything specifically about New Year. You did do the Christmas Carol, oh, let's yes. not forget Apart that. Apart from a Christmas Carol, yes, which is about <laughs> Christmas. I don't know my own work is the answer to that question. Well, how did you become to be a writer? Well, I wanted to be a politician. Aha! Uh-huh. You've made, you made the right career choice. <laughs> I was I thought I'd either be a politician or an actor, and then I went to the Young Labour Conference in 1997, and I fell in with the wrong people, and I just struggled with with the politics of it all, with the game playing of it all, and thought I'm wow. built for this. And then I tried acting too, and I just felt silly on stage, uh, which is partly due to the fact that I'm ridiculously tall, but also just I never really fitted. And I loved and I still love local politics. And, you know, I I went to the Young Labour Conference as the Young Labour Officer for um, Newbury Constituency Labour Party. And uh, and then I went on to be Secretary of my branch and Treasurer of my branch and all those things. And I still think local politics is a really beautiful place. I find professional politics, your your line of work, really difficult. And I I can't imagine what it must be like in the middle of it all. So what then sort of put you on to to becoming a writer. I wanted to direct a play and I discovered it cost £65 a night for the amateur rights to a play and decided that it would be cheaper for me to write a play and I wrote a play, discovered I was a terrible director and also a terrible writer, but that I loved writing plays. And what age was that? I was 19. And this was at Cambridge and you started writing at Cambridge essentially? Exactly, and didn't really stop and haven't really stopped since. It's been a complete compulsion ever since. That desire or that ambition to act and be be involved in politics, has that gone anywhere or are all your itches scratched by writing? I don't think it's gone anywhere. I think it's the constant wrestle of trying to be useful and trying to work out how to be useful as a writer and trying to work out how to do something worthwhile and not fall into the trap of writing something for the sake of getting on TV, which is a trap I do fall into, you know, quite often. Can I say my favourite story about Ed? Yes, yes, please. I I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's just, it's a story that I heard when I was making a play about the environment and uh, someone from Greenpeace came in and talked to us about what happened in Copenhagen and how everything was falling apart, that there was this uh, cop, 22 was it cop 22 uh, it was um, no it was it was not it was cop 15 cop 15 and everything was falling apart and it looked like there was no resolution going to happen and somehow you persuaded the president to resign at like 2 in the morning and someone else take over as president and that somehow a resolution was then found that then allowed that cop to be a success. Is uh, that true? Is that I mean, it's, it's it's sort of it's kind of a, there's there's element there's grains of truth. I'm not sure about the persuading the president to resign, but but it was a, it, I, listeners to the podcast will have probably heard this before. But it was about 
it was sort of the whole thing was going down the pad and and I was sort of in my pants in my hotel bedroom and I and I sort of hot footed it to the uh, conference center and uh sort of made a speech to try and save save things. And actually, there is footage of this somewhere, somewhere in the UN vaults, which a friend of mine... Have you in your pants? <laughs> well, not in the pants. The pants, not. So the reason why I bring that up is because that has always struck me <laughs> as the sort of thing that doesn't get headlines, but did have a huge impact and was all about knowledge of what was happening behind the scenes because it wasn't just about the speech you gave it was about what was what you were negotiating behind the microphone right and that is what I tried to do in television albeit that I fail massively and I think that's what underlying health condition is about really well it's very nice of you to bring up that story as Jeff knows I'd never tire of telling that story I can't believe it's been corroborated after all these tellings We'll, we'll come on to underlying health condition in a bit. Just um, we want to spend some more time talking about you and 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 your work. And Ed went to see the end of history. I think on my recommendation a couple of years ago, which is a play uh, you did at, at the Royal Court in London. And and Ed was mentioned in it. I think only in passing. But I wondered if that has ever happened to you that you have ended up having uncomfortable conversations or being in the same room as people who have featured in your work, perhaps more prominently? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, Ed, Ed featured quite a lot in the discussion of the play too. In the, the present, I bought the director of the play, John Tiffany, who's a very good friend of mine, was an unofficial biography of you. So, uh, right. So it was about that moment when the Labour Party turned from one thing to another and what was going on in the Labour Party at that time was very painful in terms of the the party being pulled between two extremes. And, you know, my mum, who's been in the party for years, though she's resigned at different points, but, you know, that she was she had a, a moment at a Labour Party meeting where she ended up getting booed and she was in her late 70s. And just that thing of just kind of how the party had become so fractious. And, you know, I wish you'd won because I think that the party was at its best for a moment and then we sort of fell apart and I also think you'd have been a brilliant Prime Minister but uh, no I haven't been in too many situations where I've been talking to someone (laughs) it's weird it's really really weird it's so interesting that you talk about your background you've channeled this into your work I think was it hope that you did in, yeah. in was it 2014 about yeah. austerity? Yes. And then the end of history. I didn't see hope, but I did see the end of history. Um, which has come after Christmas. Do you talk about politics with your parents? If I if I may ask, and I don't want to ask anything uncomfortable here. Every second of every meal. Yes. And uh, my dad wasn't a member of the party when I was growing up because he couldn't be because he was a local government officer. I joined the Labour Party when my mum resigned. When um, Harriet Harman sent her kid to a grant-maintained school, uh, which my mum didn't think was suitable for Labour people to do. And my mum has an idea of what Labour people are, and she felt let down by it and how the world has changed since then. And I was taught to, there was a woman called Stevie, uh, who was this kind of stalwart of the party. And she and I was 15, 16 years old. And she said, uh, your mum's left, it's time for you to join. And you need to be inside the tent. And this is the reason why the Labour Party matters. And I 
fell in love and I was a kid. I mean, Newbury CLP was one of the least successful constituency Labour parties out there. You know, we we stood no chance of winning. So it was me and a group of people who were all in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And I just loved it. I just loved it from the very start. And I've always loved the party. I haven't, I'm not as active as I should be anymore. And it's something that is a constant sort of niggle at the back of my head when will be the time when I get involved again. I was very involved in Luton and very involved in your campaign. And then when I lived in Luton and then when I uh, then when I moved to London. But since then, I just haven't found a way to get involved. And I'm looking to get back involved now, I think. Let's talk about, uh, I mean, you're obviously incredibly prolific, but, but I think it'd be really good now to get onto the work you've done over the last... Uh, year and last year you wrote uh, Help which was set in a care home during Covid and you talked very passionately about these issues in the McTaggart lecture which I strongly recommend people read and and talks about your your underlying health conditions campaign Mm -hmm. as well Um, talk to us about sort of how you managed to stay plugged into writing about if you like the real world and the real events as well as stuff like His Dark Materials, which you've you've also wrote. Yeah, so it came from an article in Luton today. So I don't live in Luton anymore, but I still keep an eye on it and and I'm still interested in it. And I still am friends with a lot of people who still live in Luton and very passionate about Luton. And there was an article in Luton today about a care home which had had an astronomical amount of deaths and it was right at the beginning of the pandemic and I just kind of leaned into it what what's happening there why is that happening and is it to do with funding is it to do with different capabilities what what's happened and then the more I looked into it the more I realized that something really disastrous has happened and it happened with the authorities being culpably aware and that anger built and I was looking to write something. Stephen Graham had said, write something for me and Jodie Comer. So I had that in my head. And the more I learned, the more I realised that something needs to be said. And initially, I was frightened of it being about COVID and sort of ran away from it. And then there's this brilliant producer I work with called George Faber. And I took the idea to him and he said, this is a really good idea, but you can't make it about overprescription and you can't make it about all the other things that you care about in terms of care. You've got to look at the issue itself, which is what has happened during COVID. And as soon as we turned our eyes on that and started researching it, the horror stories um, we heard firsthand from people that were still going through it, that still are going through it, was just terrifying and about the spread of the disease in 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 care homes and the lack of support that was given and the fact that they were made to feel not like second class citizens but like fourth or fifth class citizens the way that people were put upon them the way that disease was not monitored that they had no ability to monitor the disease the way that testing was really really limited for them the way that PPE was incredibly limited and you hear all these things and you read all these things and you feel incredibly sad and then you hear someone saying it's my fault and the rage just builds the idea that these my mum was a care worker and the idea that these care workers on minimum wage who'd gone in again and again and again every day when no one else was doing it when no one else would do it and 
the idea that they were blaming themselves for it. They were angry with others, but they were blaming themselves for it. That's when it was like, okay, now now there's a story that has to be told and um, needs to be told. And then it becomes, how do you do it well enough? And that was a battle and a half. And what was the reaction, Jack? You see, the version I, I would tell is the version which is sort of um, self-lacerating. Um, uh, the truth is, I was very proud of it. I'm very proud of everyone else's work in it. There's bits of it that I would rewrite because that's who I am. But my wife says it's one of the best things I've ever done, and I think it's one of the best things I've ever done. From a sort of nuts and bolts of writing point of view, there's this anger about something that's happening in society rising inside of you. How do you approach turning that into a story without making it preachy i know that is the job of of the writer but specifically with this how did you go about building something that that would tell this story to a viewing audience i think that's the hardest thing and it's about going i recognize that these people are doing heroic things, but I also recognise that they're people. And unless I tell the, the story of the truth of them, unless I tell them with the mistakes they make, as well as the beautiful things they do, then people will dismiss it. And and also, I think that that is what a hero is. A hero is someone that got, kind of is wearing a dirty T-shirt, is not perfect. And the imperfect is what makes things beautiful. So, yes, it, with help... I thought a lot about people who'd worked with my mum. I also thought a lot about people I'd gone to school with who'd gone into the care sector um, and the fact that they were, on the whole, people who hadn't had a great time in mainstream education, had been let down by mainstream education in lots of ways and so had arrived into a situation where they have issues with authority because the teachers that have taught them up to that point, the adults that they'd been around had told them that they were failures and had put them in a corner. And so it was thinking a lot about those people and and Sarah was someone, uh, the character that Jodie Comer played was called Sarah. Sarah was someone who'd been through a pro and who was sort of, at one point, the sort of person who people would be antagonistic towards on the bus. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, or would be slightly, move away from slightly on the bus. Um, And she wasn't that anymore. And she'd grown up a lot and she was a different sort of person, but she wasn't the sort of person who you immediately think of when you think of a care worker. You think of someone that's a great big soft hug and Sarah wasn't a great big soft hug. But what she discovered was that the great big soft hug that was inside her was quite, quite amazing. And so through the drama, you saw her growing as you saw the pandemic happening. And so she wasn't perfect, but she discovered a perfection within her. And it was one perfection amidst amidst lots of imperfections, but but it was it was really profound for her and uh, and and that was the journey that we followed through the show so if i was a care worker watching that show i wouldn't necessarily know how to get in touch with you i'm i'm just wondering if you heard from people in any capacity after that film was aired to to say thank you for telling that story or to give you their reaction to seeing that story on screen we we heard a lot of reactions and we heard a lot of reactions all the way through you know that the 
the truth is we had a little trust of people who we talked to about all sorts of things uh, to do with it in order to get the story right. We had an actor on the show who was also a care worker and we had a care worker who was a consultant on set. And then we had a sort of brains trust who were who were sort of supplying us with detail all the way through it and with emotion and with truth. And yes, there was a really nice response from the care community afterwards, which was really nice. And particularly from the people that we talked to, which was lovely, you know, that, that, that those are the people I was really worried about. There was a point when someone read the script and said, I'm not sure I want to be part of this anymore. That I don't like what you're saying here, here and here. And was very ready to walk away. And we had this moment and it was about two, three weeks before filming where we suddenly went, is this all wrong? And then we talked and we talked and we talked to this person and we heard what was the problems? And then we tried to solve them. And thankfully, we did find a way of solving them so that the, those problems were overcome. But you know, that, that that's the thing that you've got to do with these dramas. You know, you talk to a lot of people, and you've got to be ready for them to talk to you too. Because if you don't have that open line of communication, if you don't have their ability to criticise you, then you're never going to write anything decent. And Jack, do you think that, that these issues around uh, the 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 circumstances in which care workers are operating in the pay of care workers uh, as part of a general discussion of the pay of, of of key workers that that was obviously talked about a lot at the start of the pandemic it feels somewhat like it's faded from public view i wonder whether you think that's right i can't imagine that it's not hell in those care homes right now i can't imagine that omicron is not making it really really hellish and with the combination of what brexit did of the fact that they required vaccination status for their care workers, all those things, and the fact that there's a lot of care homes that are in financial difficulties following what's happened in the last year and a half, I can't imagine that it's not incredibly awful. And I'm hearing bits and pieces from the people I we spent time with that it is a really, really hard time. I'm not seeing much in the newspapers about it. And certainly I'm not seeing a campaign for a living wage, which is what, I, I don't understand why that's not happened. There should be a national living wage for care workers. They are doing one of the hardest jobs in our country and they are relied upon by so many people. But it has totally faded from view. And I'd say that's true of a lot of disabled issues that uh, disability gets no spotlight. Let's come on to your um, campaign on uh, with the campaign you've co-founded called Underlying Health Condition. Um, now... I think it's specifically about representation and inclusion of disabled people and film and TV, but but it's 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 situated in a much broader context, including your your disgust at that particular phrase, I think, which you tweeted about relatively early on in the pandemic in, in April twenty twenty. Could you just talk to us about what, what's led you to 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 make this such an important focus and and before we get onto the specifics of what you're saying needs to happen. So I was a disabled person. I still consider myself a member of the disabled community, whether that's legitimate or not, I don't know. But for now, the community seem relatively okay with it. Do you want to just say a little bit about what that experience is, if you don't, if you wouldn't yeah, mind? Of course. When I was at Cambridge, I had what I think was a mental breakdown, which I ignored and then was followed swiftly by a physical breakdown where I became allergic to artificial heat, to natural heat and to my body heat. So I became, a, I, I had an allergic reaction every time I moved. So I spent six months flat on my back and then I spent, I, I'd say between 12 years and 15 years overcoming it and being on quite heavy medication as I was dealing with 
quite regular pain and dealing with a lot of movement restriction. And during that time, I went to a Grey Eye Open Day and a woman called Alex Bulmer, I, I said to her, I don't know whether I belong here. And, and she said, of course you do. And from that moment on, I've made disabled work and I've had a lot of disabled friends and I've worked a lot in the disabled community. And during lockdown, right at the beginning of it, this company uh, that I work with, Grey Eye Theatre Company, we, we did this thing called Crips Without Constraints that was just disabled writers writing a piece uh, of video that for a disabled actor be- to perform. And it was just the disabled perspective on what was going on. And as part of that, we did a lot of talking about what was going on. And some of the things I was hearing from them and from my friends about how they were being treated by the medical community was astonishing to me. You know, that the NHS isn't supposed to ration care. It does, of course. It says it can do this and it can do that. But what it doesn't say is if you come into our hospitals and you have an acute need, we will try to meet that acute need. And I had friends who were being told very openly, and one person in particular, Jamie Hale, who wrote a beautiful book of poetry about it, being told very explicitly that you will be denied care. You will not be on ventilators. If you come into our hospital, uh, we will discard you. And the idea of dividing people like that, of saying, and, and I know it happens, and I know doctors have to make decisions like that all the time, and I don't think this is the responsibility of the NHS. I think this is the responsibility of governance of the NHS, the idea that deaths were divided into two and that that policy was replicated in terms of how we treated care homes and how we treated disabled people needing medical care was horrifying. And my friend Liz Carr, the, um, I mean, you talk about my anger towards the word underlying health condition. I think Liz Carr said it much better. She's a brilliant actress. And she said, you know, that I'm going to change my name to underlying health condition because that's how I feel right now. I feel like I am being denied an identity beyond that phrase. And and we all saw it. We all saw those figures where it's like, these are the deaths you should care about and these are the deaths that you, sh- you, you shouldn't. And I didn't understand how our country could do that. And I still don't. And talk to us then about your, your campaign. Yeah, so about halfway through it all, I'm co-writing a drama with uh, Genevieve Barr. We, we, we write together all the time and she's a very close friend of mine. And we were just sort of moaning about what was going on and how little we can do and feeling like there was nothing we could do. And then we realised that we could do something and that TV has an importance that stretches beyond the industry. That TV is... Uh, Uh, I called it in a speech, an empathy box. You know, TV is that thing that sits in the corner of the room and reflects society back at itself. And if TV is failing as we knew it was, disabled people, by being completely inaccessible uh, to disabled people, inaccessible because of attitude, but also inaccessible because of space, then that needs to change. And if that can change, then the ripples from that through society as a whole could be really, really profound. And so we started working on that and trying to think about how to challenge uh, current ideas of representation. And then we expanded out. And this uh, woman uh, uh, who'd worked with me a lot as a production manager called Katie Player, we started talking to her and she said, it's all very well. And people do this all the time, talking about figures and talking about how if we could just get this amount of people working in TV from the disabled sector, then the world could be a better place. The problem is that TV isn't built for disabled people to take part in it. 
And so we need to work out a way to get the social model of disability into television. So the social model of disability is a beautiful idea and it's a really, really simple idea. And it says that disabled people aren't disabled by their impairments. They're disabled by society. So a wheelchair user can go anywhere, provided rooms are accessible to them and provided pavements are accessible to them and provided transport is accessible to them. The trouble is we have a society in which pavements are broken, in which uh, transport is frequently inaccessible and in which rooms are behind steps. The idea of step-free access is still uh, an anathema in London, certainly, and and in in the wider country. So if we can challenge that, if we can make the world a more accessible place, then disability sort of fades from view. And in TV... TV has been built for non-disabled people. Now, there's certain places, studio spaces, for instance, are very accessible because they're all built for dollies. So you've got to be able to push a dolly into a room. You've got to be able to push a camera around in order to film a show. But when you're on location, when you're using a facilities company, which is if you're filming in a house, they're everything you need in order to be able to film in a house. So they're places for actors to go and sit in between shots. They're catering trucks and they're particularly toilets and... I've sat on panels about disability for 15 years and the first thing that comes up every time is there are no toilets I can use and the horror stories I've heard... And you tell some horror stories in the McTaggart lecture, yeah, don't people, you? people uh, deliberately denying themselves food and water because in order to use a toilet, they have to travel 15 minutes to a Tesco and when they get to that Tesco, they use the toilet and then they come back. That means that they take 40 minutes out of their day. You can't take 40 minutes out of your day on a film shoot. You know, it's, it's really, really hard. And disabled people are very good at fitting in with non-disabled values and they do not w- want to cause a fuss. And so I've got friends that were using Solpidine Max in order to get through the day because they're denying themselves food and drink. And this is happening across the board. There are stories across the board about disabled people being put on the bottom floor when everyone else on the sixth floor uh, and just, you know, completely excluded from the production disabled people being told that the green room that they've got is the disabled toilet because it's the only accessible wagon that they've got that that all the non-disabled people are are behind steps and it happens again and again and again so our challenge to the industry was let's work out a way to make the social model of disability work within television and if we do that then the effect in terms of getting disabled people into our industry will be profound And if we represent disability properly on television, then society will get a fair view of disability. And if society gets a fair view of disability, then maybe attitudes towards disability could change forever. Television, I think, and I could be very wrong, but television is that important. And if you get telly right, if you get authorship right, and and authorship doesn't mean writers, it means that everyone in a film shoot, if you get that authorship right and authentic and you're telling disabled stories fairly and truly, then people will change. I really believe that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. And that's where underlying health condition comes in. So you announce the creation of this, uh, I guess you could pressure group. Is that the right? Yes, that's the word. Pressure group um, at that lecture in August. Now, who are your fellow troublemakers? You, you've mentioned uh, Genevieve Barr, uh, Katie Player. Anyone else involved? Yes, and Holly Lubrant. And who is who is Holly? Holly's um, also someone that comes from the production side, like Katie. She's an associate producer, I think, but she's moving up through the ranks rapidly. She worked on a show that Genevieve and I did together called Then Barbara Met Allen. We got to know her there, and then she came on board our happy band. And and you announced that you'd commissioned research now. What was this about? Was this about having data to back up what you knew to be true, what you'd seen with your own eyes, the the anecdotes that you'd heard? Exactly. What we did is we tried to ask very basic questions. It was a two-page survey about what facilities they had for disabled people. And then we tried to look at the results and come to some conclusions as to what the the problems were. And as you say, we had an idea in advance as to what the problems were. We were surprised by some of the findings, but mostly, yes, it backed up what we knew to be right, which is that none of these places have been built with accessibility in mind. And the adaptation that has been sorely needed for a long time just hasn't happened. And then when you published this report in December, um, do you want to talk us through what you were hoping to achieve by that? What what thought went into actually how you present these findings? Well, the, the, the thing was always, how do we do it with hope? Um, that we didn't want this to be a sort of castigation. We wanted this to be, this is an opportunity that, you know, that we've seen the industry in a different way. And you seem to be recognising the fact that we've seen it in this different way. And we think there is a way of solving this. So we did endless Zooms through the September to, to Christmas period with a lot of different companies where we were talking about our ideas as to how to solve this thing. And we ended up coming up with four points that if the industry adopted these points, we think that it could be a genuinely accessible place. And so far, the, the industry attitude to those points has been very positive. And can you give us those points in in bullet points? Yes. The first point is that there should be a line in every budget, which is about needed adjustments. And and this is from, if you're on a £750,000 plus TV show, it should be £5,000, but it should be adjustable down on lower shows. So we're not talking a vast amount of money. You know, 5000 as a part of 750000 is not a huge amount of money. But it's money for necessary adaptions. So that could be a ramp, 
That could be a stall. It could be that someone who is working in the camera team, who's never mentioned it to anyone, has the need to sit down between shots. Having that money for the show that they would pay attention to, because if it's in the budget, people pay attention to something, could just prompt a change in attitudes on the set. And related to this, the second point is the need for an accessibility coordinator. Now, intimacy coordinators, I think everyone's heard about now, intimacy coordinators work with actors on sex scenes so that no longer people are in a situation where they feel uncomfortable. Accessibility would be exactly the same thing. It would be someone that's job on the show is to make sure that people feel it is an accessible place. And that can be the need for that stool, that quiet conversation that someone in the camera team says, listen, could I have something so that I've got something between shots? Or it could be attitudinal, or it could be any of those things. It's just someone to make people feel adjusted and secure. The third point is a freelancer fund. And the way that the freelancer fund would work is we, we've got this thing, Access to Work, which is a system that's in place by the government, which says that there should not be additional costs for a workplace or for a disabled individual working in society. And unfortunately, access to work is problematic for TV. And it's problematic for two main reasons. One is there's been a lot of cuts in access to work, which means that if you are a deaf professional, for instance, having an interpreter for all the time that you need on an offset is too expensive for the money that access to work give. The second thing is that TV is very fast moving. So you get a job on Thursday, you're on set on Monday. Access to work requires a heap of paperwork, a heap of paperwork. And sometimes there's not time to get those funds done. So we're not talking about replacing access to work. We're talking about supplementing and supporting access to work so that disabled needs can be met. So on a show that I worked on, we called someone for 6am in order for this person to be on set at 6am. Their support worker needs to be with them at 3am. That is expensive. So that person needs money in place so that need is met, but it doesn't detract from that person's ability to tell the story that we need them to tell. And then the fourth idea is that we have a studios and facilities fund. Now, this is the most complicated bit. And we've had lots of conversations with people about whether it is our industry's responsibility to support the very rich studios in adapting their own environments. And so it would need to be a needs-based, you know, that, that not all the studios are rich, certainly not all the facilities companies are rich. This is something that the industry hasn't looked at. This is something that the these companies, the, the studios companies and the facilities companies haven't been asked to examine before. We're now asking them to examine it and we don't think it's fair that this should be all stick this should all be like well unless you change we're not having anything more to do with you we're saying we recognize this is going to cost you money we want to be part in solving a historic problem with you and so we are going to support you to some degree financially if you need that support and what was the reaction about the industry broadly positive but we anticipated it would be broadly positive. The, the question is whether change happens. You know, that it's very, very easy to say the right thing. With disability in particular, it's very, very difficult to do the right thing. 
So when you talk about other representation issues about people of colour behind and in front of the camera, that then certain targets can be set and there isn't the same boundaries. There are boundaries, hair and makeup and all those sort of complicated things that need to be sorted out, lighting that needs to be sorted out for people of colour. But with disability, uh, you need to change the entire setup. And we make these four points. What we're arguing for is is a quiet revolution. And at the moment, there seems to be a lot of industry support for it. And at the moment, you know, we've got some very important players who are saying this is important and we realise we need to change. We are anticipating a very, very hard road in, in making that change happen. Channel 4 have gone as far as saying that they will accept some of the recommendations in the report. Love Channel 4. And the BBC and Netflix made a commitment to disabled programming and Channel 4 made a commitment to disabled programming. And we are having conversations with all sorts of places about what we can do. And change is happening. It it just needs to happen at a pace. We are incredibly grateful to the response so far, but we are stealing ourselves for a hard year when making these recommendations into flesh. And we are not suggesting that these recommendations need to be put in absolutely as we have them but making these recommendations as flesh is going to be a a very hard journey and a long long hard walk and and some of the examples that you'd made in the mctaggart lecture they are pretty harsh examples of you in your career having conversations around disabled representation on screen trying to get scripts away trying to get talent on screen and facing rejection. I wondered if any of those people, without naming any names, if any of those people had contacted you and apologised and said, your, your speech has led me to think differently about this now. Uh, no. Um, I, I hope that the speech was clear that I'm also culpable and that I had been a coward. But yeah, there were a few people in the speech that I was worried were going to come back to me and they didn't. Uh, and I was worried they would come back with anger or an apology. But Actually, I don't think they recognise themselves, which I think is telling in and of itself that this is something which people do. This is a, this is a prejudice that people have that they don't even realise they have. And where I was talking about my own cowardice was, you know, th- there have been a number of times when uh, not only I could have done more, I, I sat in a room and was culpable whilst people made uh, ableist decisions. And I remain very angry myself about it. And I think it's very easy to have a a virtuous idea of yourself, as I had, and think, because I'm doing this, this and this, that makes me immune from prosecution about this, this and this. And actually, when I think about it, and when I think about what, what my professional life has looked like, there have been a whole heap of instances where I should have stood up and, and you know me, I'm very shy, but I should have stood up all the same and gone, you can't say that, you can't do that. And because I had knowledge of something they didn't, and it's our responsibility when we have knowledge of something that people don't to correct people. And, and I was frightened and I'm very upset myself that, that, that I was. We're really big on empathy in this podcast, Jack. And, and obviously storytelling, hearing other people's stories is a huge part of that. But just to be pessimistic, which we try not to be, d- does it take something seismic, a moment like this pandemic to, to just get people's attention, to, to get them to listen to different kinds of experiences. Would your lecture have happened or had the same impact 
four or five years ago. Aaron Darty Roy, I think, says something like that pandemics are an opportunity to see the world anew. And I absolutely believe that's true, where disability is concerned and that the pandemic wasn't a, a, a world showing itself in a new way. It was actually the world showing itself in an old way. And by seeing it through that microscope, maybe we are capable of change. And Yes, I don't think it should be about looking at it pessimistically. And the four points within our report are all about optimism, we think, which is TV can do something. And TV can do something because TV is rich and because TV has the capability of doing something. And again, if TV does something, the ripples will be profound. So we're asking for quite big things. We're not just asking for toilets. We've got lots of ideas that can travel through the industry and we think can be paid for relatively easily, which can make a huge dramatic change. What's the next project for you, Jack? I'm doing this project for the BBC called Best Interests, which is about a child where the hospital decides that the child's needs will be best served by ceasing treatment and the parents fight it. And it's about the inequities within the health service, but it's also about looking at disability in a slightly different way and challenging notions of what a life is. And hopefully it will be interesting. And what's the balance for you, if this isn't a sort of a bit of a silly question, what's the balance for you between stories like that, which are clearly sort of direct social commentary and more, well, I mean, I, I'm not saying his dark materials isn't social commentary in a way too, but, but you know, b- between something which is more kind of realism and, 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 and something which is more kind of uh, fantasy. It's a constant working out, you know, that there's no real, you know, I don't have a career plan. I'm just sort of like a butterfly flitting between different things. I, I don't do anything unless I feel it says something about our society. And I think that what Philip writes about our society and the challenges he makes to the notion of what is a hero. I I just love it so much. And that's why I was really, really happy to do his star materials. I'm very grateful to get that job. When I do something like Enola Holmes, I'm trying to find a way of telling a little bit about society whilst also giving the audience a rip-roaring ride. The first Enola Holmes film, we just finished filming the second Enola Holmes film, which obviously I can't talk about, but the first Enola Holmes film was about suffrage and was about land. That was hidden in a lot of fun, hopefully. The second film has also got a bit to say about society and it's a, a bit different about society. And, you know, it's really interesting to tell stories that way. And it's equally interesting to tell stories like Help, which are just kind of straight down the line, social realism. Ed is uh, Ed's always asking me for TV recommendations. And he's one of these infuriating people who will often bail on something halfway through episode one. To take the pressure off me, can oh, why don't you just stop at infuriating people? Actually, <laughs> <laughs> can can you step in here, Jack? Can can you tell Ed what he should be watching at the moment? Yes, but I think you probably watch more TV than me, Jeff. Um, uh, a very British scandal just started on BBC One. That was fantastic. That is fantastic. Sarah Phelps, who I've always loved as a writer. Let, let me ask you this, Jack, while you're interrupting your attempt to answer Jeff's question. Uh, what, apart from your own work, and I, I, I just, I'm bracketing your own work here, which is, which is brilliant. What's the thing about politics that you've really loved, that you really kind of think is, 
you know, not not so much. I'd wish I'd written that, but I think that's such an important. The the film I the fil- I mean, just to answer the question, yeah, myself. It's a bit. It's a bit going back. The film I absolutely loved, and I have inflicted on my children and Justine, is uh, All the President's Men. I love that film too. It's a sin. I thought was uh, a, yeah. a beautiful political film. I mean, it, it, it depends yeah. on what you see as politics, yeah. but that idea of looking at the pandemic that everyone tried to ignore and the way that, I mean, Russell T. Davis is my hero. Yeah. The way that Russell found a way of telling that story that was humane and difficult and truthful and brutal was like nothing else, you know, that that, end of at one where he was in a ward on his own on a plastic bed dying behind glass and that's you know 25 30 years ago was really really telling so yes another of russell's works uh, was a very english scandal you know the jeremy thorpe affair which also was one of my favorite political stories yeah 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 I, i'm trying to think what mayor of east town i thought was remarkable and I saw people being snotty about it when it first started getting traction and then slowly but surely the way that it found its truth, the way that it never let an audience down, it's so hard those last episodes and the way that it just stayed within that sort of coil of horror I I thought was remarkable. There you go, Ed. I hope you're writing all that down. I'm definitely writing all of them down. Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I hope I wasn't too umming and ahhing. You were brilliant. I'm not very um, good at talking. That's why I write. Not at all. And I've seen you make speeches at the BAFTAs and you're so good at it. Uh, Piers Morgan once described a BAFTA speech I gave as the most embarrassing in the history of the BAFTAs. So I don't think that's true. No, that's a, that's a badge of honour if Piers Morgan is saying that about you. <laughs> Rachel, my wife, the first time I took her home to my parents, she said two things on the way home. The first is, I'm never playing Monopoly with those people again. And the second is, you didn't say a word all weekend. Apparently, I just sat there in complete silence. My natural inclination is towards silence. So these things where I talk are very weird for me. I need to stop thinking that your father is David Morrissey. I mean, I'm sorry about this, but I basically keep picturing David Morrissey because he played your father in The End of History. Uh, That is much less good looking than David Morrissey. I can tell you that for, well for um, you'll have to go round for a game of monopoly ed <laughs> maybe class struggle jeff oh yeah ed, ed played a board game called class struggle when he was a kid jack was class struggle a, a marxist reinterpretation of monopoly yeah it's sort of i don't think we played it that often but it's a good story for the podcast but <laughs> awesome jack you've been brilliant and it's and it's such an important campaign and i would really strongly recommend people read your mctaggart lecture which i think is just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, thought-provoking lecture. So thank you so much for all of your work, for all of your championing of such important causes. Uh, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 